If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, we've got a conversation to mark the 75th anniversary of the beginning of one of the bloodiest clashes of the Second World War, the Battle of Okinawa. Our guest is historian and author Saul David, whose new book, Crucible of Hell, tells the story of the battle and how it encouraged the US to turn to the atom bomb. Our editor, Rob Attar, spoke to Saul to find out more. In April 1945, the war in Europe seemed to be coming to an end. But what's the situation in the Pacific at this point? Uh, Still uh, a long way to go in the minds of the Allies. They have been island hopping, really, through uh, the central Pacific for the previous two years, really since the campaign at Guadalcanal. And they fought a series of increasingly uh, bloody and brutal battles that have really come up, culminated with a, with a battle that's quite well known today, Iwo Jima. And Iwo Jima was the island at that point that was closest to Japan. Now, at this stage, the Allies are advancing on two axes through the central uh, Pacific, as I was describing, uh, island hopping, but also through the Philippines. They started out out in New Guinea and they're coming up through the Philippines. So these two axes are heading towards the island of Japan. And so the campaign to capture Okinawa is where these two axes actually meet. And the interesting thing and the most significant thing about Okinawa is it's the first bit of Japanese soil that the Allies get to. So previously they were fighting over territories that Japan had conquered early on in the war and winning them back. But Okinawa is different because this is actually Japanese soil. It's it's a Japanese prefecture, so it's part of the Japanese administration. The Japanese, of course, uh, maybe 50, 60 years earlier, towards the end of the 19th century, had got their hands on Okinawa for the first time. So it's not like it had been part of the Japanese home islands for, you know, for donkey's years, but it has been incorporated into uh, the Japanese political system. And it's the first time, as I say, that the Allies have reached that point. So it's very significant. The Japanese have been fighting tooth and nail to defend all these posts that the Allies had finally managed to get their hands on. Uh, But there's an assumption, and it's a good assumption that they're going to fight even more stoutly to defend Okinawa. That being the case, did they need to invade Okinawa? Could they have bypassed it? It, it definitely was an option. I think the most uh, significant reason that they decide to take Okinawa is because it's really going to be used as, an, as, as a massive aircraft carrier. This is uh, an island 70 miles long. It's got a number of existing airfields on it. The Americans will plan to put even more on it. And they realise that to launch the final end game, which is to actually invade the home islands themselves, that little cluster of islands that forms Japan proper, uh, They need a base. They need a striking base. They need a base from which they can soften it up with bombing raids. But they also need a a supply base in which the Navy can operate from. And so Okinawa was perfect in that sense. Did they absolutely have to take it? Not necessarily. They could have gone to the mainland. They could have operated out of China. But I think it was probably a sensible decision to go there. There were lots of factors for and against, and probably there were more factors for. 
what number of forces were scheduled to, f- to fight this battle? And did they have any sense of the amount of bloodshed that would follow? They knew it was going to be a tough fight, the Allies, that is, and so did the Japanese, for that matter. The Japanese had, for the defence of their islands, an enormous number of troops on Okinawa, and they had been increasing the number uh, during the previous 12 months. So they knew this was going to be the first tough fight. They had about 110,000 soldiers on there. Not all of them uh, Japanese regulars. There were a number of Okinawan conscripts. Uh, militiamen, I suppose you'd call them, probably in the region of about 20,000, but that still left 90,000 Japanese soldiers, many of whom were veterans. So these are tough soldiers who uh, really are going to be expected to fight to the finish. The Allies, on the other hand, knowing that there's a sizable garrison, they didn't realise it was as big as it actually was, actually. They thought probably about 60,000 defenders. And the Allies realised this is going to be a brutal fight and we need to bring overbearing force. So... The naval, air and land force in its total size uh, brought to bear in the the campaign was over half a million men. Of those, about 180,000 are ground troops going in in the initial uh, part of the invasion and they can be backed up by other troops. So you can see that... They, they were going to have an advantage even on the ground of about two to one. And uh, they were going to discover very quickly that they were going to need those sort of numbers because of the tactics that the Japanese had decided to fight with. Now, obviously, a year earlier, there'd been an allied amphibious invasion in Normandy in, with huge numbers that in certain places ended up being quite bloody on the beaches. To what extent did the initial assault on Okinawa, how did it go when they first came ashore? Well, the assumption was the Japanese would fight on the beaches. In fact, they'd fought on the beaches in the last two major campaigns, the major two landings at Peleliu and Iwo Jima, and an awful lot of Allied soldiers, chiefly American, had been lost. So there was absolutely an assumption. And when you look at the diaries and first-hand accounts of the soldiers going into action, pretty much all of them were thinking this is going to be another Peleliu. Um, The soldiers from the 1st Marine Division, which had been fighting in the Pacific since Guadalcanal, and was the unit, the first ground American unit to go into action and was still fighting at Okinawa. So really, it spans the whole of the Pacific War. These soldiers, particularly the the ones that had fought at Peleliu, were expecting uh, enormous casualties. What actually happened is the landings were were virtually unopposed. And the reason they were unopposed is because the Japanese had made a conscious decision not to defend the beaches, actually to dig very strong defensive positions in lines uh, across the centre of the island that the Allies would almost stumble upon. And these uh, defended positions would enable them to fight a a very bloody, as they uh, imagined, defensive battle against superior numbers. This was the only way the Japanese had come to the conclusion they could win, in inverted commas, on Okinawa. So how far did this Japanese plan work? It was very effective. I, I, I should add that the uh, the Imperial High Command back in Tokyo's assumption was the soldiers just need to hold out for a certain amount of time and our air assets and our sea assets are actually going to destroy the Pacific Fleet, the the uh, fifth, the US Fifth Fleet, enormous number of, of uh, battleships, aircraft carriers, you know, the, the most powerful uh, strike fleet that's ever been put into action in history. Uh, and the Japanese were convinced that they they could knock it out 
really by using suicide tactics. They were going to send over an enormous number of planes, but not just planes, rockets, submarines, all kinds of suicide craft. Even the largest battleship in the world, Yamato, was sent on a on a kamikaze run during the battle. And the hope was that if we knock out the Navy, uh, the ground troops will will have no supply and they'll and we'll be able to mop them up on the ground on Okinawa. But of course, they overcalculated, and that's not what happened. Presume that was slightly overambitious a plan to knock out the, this huge US fleet. But did the kamikaze attacks still cause quite a lot of damage? They caused an awful lot of damage. I mean, you've got to remember one of the issues for an American serviceman generally, but certainly those in the Navy, is the psychological effect of these kamikaze attacks. They they never knew when they were going to come. They had a, a conviction relatively early on that if they did come, they'd keep coming. Even if they were shot to pieces, these planes would keep coming with their 250 kilogram and 500 kilogram bombs, and they would aim for the center of whichever Allied ship they'd targeted. Their main prize was aircraft carriers. They didn't actually manage to sink any. The next prize was battleships. They didn't sink any of those, although they struck a number of them. They did, however, take a really quite a a gruesome toll of the destroyers that were really being used in a defensive screen around the islands and around the 5th US fleet as as protection. And 36 uh, US ships were eventually sunk, which was the biggest toll of the war. And another 360 or so were badly damaged. So you can see that the Kamakan uh, campaign was effective. It just wasn't effective enough against a US fleet that when you add together everything, aircraft carriers, battleships, cruisers, destroyers, and all the landing craft was was more than 1,400 craft strong. Coming back to the island itself, what was the nature of the combat between the two sides? The nature of the combat was really almost akin to the First World War because, as I've described, you had these very strongly defended positions, which the Japanese had actually spent almost the previous year creating, and they'd used a lot of the local population to dig these trenches to to create these fortifications. And they were dug right into the hillsides. And and they didn't just create a defensive position facing the next hill. They had them on both sides of the hill. So that even if you managed to capture one hill, the Japanese were still inside it. And if you then tried to advance on the next hill, they would shoot you in the back. So each of these uh, features, had, literally, they had to be winkled out. Um, the Americans eventually got very ruthless in the means with which they they tried to winkle out the Japanese defenders. They they used gasoline, they used flamethrowers, they used explosives, they used napalm. Uh, they used everything they could. And you may think that that's, you know, that's pretty brutal, that's pretty cruel, until you realize that very few of those Japanese defenders were ever prepared to, to surrender. Uh, and therefore, the US servicemen pretty much had no choice if they were going to keep advancing. And and that brings you on to the, another point I was, I was going to raise, which is the fact that the Pacific War is known for the really savage nature of the fighting. And that holds true in Okinawa too, then. Yeah, I, th- I think it's the most savage fighting of the Pacific War. And it, and it was up against some pretty stiff competition, um, I have to say. How do we know that? Well, we know that from, from lots of different factors. We know it actually partly from the casualties the Americans took. Even with the overwhelming force that they put on that island in terms of uh, troop numbers, but also in terms of firepower, they had complete air superiority, apart from the odd time the kamikazes were coming over. Uh, they were able to use ground attack planes. They were able to bomb the uh, Japanese positions. But so 
strongly were they embedded into these positions, so deeply were they inside the mountains, that actually a lot of those explosives did very little damage. So the only way you could get them out was by hand-to-hand combat. And look at the casualty figures. I mean, they were really, really startling. The US servicemen lost 12,500 soldiers, making it the bloodiest battle of the, of the Pacific. Another 37,000 uh, wounded. And here's the really striking figure, 26,000 battle fatigue casualties. In other words, 26,000 soldiers who effectively had PTSD and couldn't go on fighting because of the nature of the fighting, because of the close hand-to-hand combat, because of the fact that the Japanese would never surrender and they would keep on firing even when they were wounded, because of the conditions in which they had to fight. When the weather turned halfway through the battle, it literally became a swamp. At one stage, it was pretty much akin to First World War fighting, just people in, in waterlogged holes trying to survive, difficult getting enough supplies to the men in the front line, and they're up against a foe who simply wouldn't give in. And as a result of that, a third of all American casualties were people who simply couldn't go on, who who'd sort of temporarily lost the will to keep fighting and lost their minds in some cases. This whole point about the Japanese not wanting to surrender is something that comes up time and time again in the Pacific War. Do we get any insight from Okinawa specifically as to why these Japanese soldiers essentially would rather die than give up? Well, one of the things I was I was determined to do with this book is to look at the battle from all sides, look at the battle from the perspective of the Allied servicemen, but also from the Okinawan civilians who were on the island and actually had to go through the experience of having their island fought over, and, of course, the Japanese servicemen and their families. So you get this 360-degree view of the battle. And one of the key things, the key questions for me, as you, as you quite rightly ask, is why were so many Japanese servicemen prepared to fight to the death? And what you you realize when you begin to read some of the background, when you begin to read about the education system in Japan at that time, and when you begin to look at some of the cultural influences on Japanese servicemen, like the like the Shinto and the Bushido uh, warrior code, is that this idea of dying for a greater cause, dying for the state, dying for the emperor, was absolutely interwoven into Japanese society, even into Japanese morality in Western society, particularly a Judeo-Christian uh, culture. There's very much a sense of suicide being, you know, against the norm. It was the opposite in Japan. So that to sacrifice your life, to lay down your life for a greater cause was not only acceptable, it was expected. And therefore, huge numbers of soldiers were prepared to die, to fight to the end, and to act effectively as suicide bombers. And and not only that, they were supported by the civilian population back in Japan. Now, of course, after the war, there's been a you know rejection of this. But at the time, and all I can go on is reading the diaries and the letters of people who are actually uh, being sent on these missions, you get a sense of this being completely normal in, in Japanese society. It's chilling, but it's also quite revealing as to why they did it. And you mentioned before the situation of civilians. What impact did this battle have on them and were they subject to any abuses or atrocities? I think the biggest tragedy of this battle, in in my view, um, uh, and I've written and read a lot of first-hand accounts about war and the experiences people go through. But the biggest tragedy of this battle, in my view, is what happened to the civilian population and in the numbers uh, that were drawn into the fighting. So the island population was about 375,000 before the battle started. And some of those people had been evacuated, but not that many. And the reason not that many were evacuated is because the Japanese had made a decision that they actually wanted to use them as auxiliaries. 
first of all, to help uh, dig fortifications, but then once the fighting started, actually to use schoolgirls and schoolboys in an auxiliary capacity for the armed forces. They would act as nurses, they would act as message bearers, and in some cases they would be expected to fight as well. Uh, So that's the first point. There were an awful lot of people on the island. And the second point is that the Japanese, as the battle developed and as they got pushed down into the southern part of of the island, into the final redoubt um, towards the end of the battle heard insisted that all the uh, population that was still under their control would be taken there as well. Now, they didn't have to do that. They could have released them. They could have uh, pointed them in a direction where the fighting wasn't going to go. But actually, this was a conscious decision. And it was a pretty ruthless decision to use the civilian population uh, as a kind of shield in one sense, but also, uh, you know, they've got to share the fate of the servicemen. And as a result of all of that, enormous numbers of civilians lost their lives. Now, you might conclude what they lost their lives just because, you know, they were in the way. They, it was friendly fire from both sides. Uh, they, they, they were caught between the two warring, warring sides. Uh, if that was the case, the actual final death toll of 125,000, which is a third of the pre-war population, would have been much smaller. And the reason it was so large and so horrific is because the Japanese managed to convince huge numbers of Okinawan civilians in their control, under their control, that it was better to commit suicide than it was to hand themselves over to the Americans, who would undoubtedly rape and murder them. This was a lie. This was a a propaganda which had been building many years in the making and horrifically and almost unbelievably Uh, a large chunk of the Okinawan population were prepared to uh, believe this. And not only did they take their own lives, they murdered some of their own families. And uh, probably the most disturbing single eyewitness account that I read and is included in the book, because you can't really shy away from these sorts of details if you want to tell a true account of the battle, is one 15-year-old describing the murder of his family. uh, And he's then intending to commit suicide himself afterwards. He doesn't, or we'd never have that account. And there's a reason for that. And you'll have to read the book to find out why. But, But it's absolutely chilling when he describes the killing of his family, his two siblings, and also his mother. And Uh, when he's talking about his mother, he says, um, in the act of killing her, she was crying and I was crying too. You know, that single sentence just sums up the sort of pitiless nature of this battle. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. If you were going to invade the home islands, which was the plan towards the autumn of 1945 and also the spring of 1946, you are going to have to fight your way through these islands. And the battle is going to be, as Truman put it later in a letter, Okinawa from one end to the other. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest 
Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. How eventually then did the Americans actually manage to defeat the Japanese? As far as the Japanese defenders of the island were concerned, the only way that the Americans could finish the battle, could win the uh, the campaign, is by rooting them all out, either killing them or taking them prisoner. Now, as there had been a decision among the Japanese and it was dishonourable to surrender, a decision to fight to the last man, you're not going to get many prisoners. Actually, about 7,000 of the original garrison of 110,000 were taken prisoner, but most of those were Okinawan conscripts. The Japanese servicemen, not many of them surrendered. Uh, And so they literally fought to the finish. The battle took 83 blood-soaked days to come to a conclusion. And in that time, not only did you have the awful casualties on both sides, you had a, a number of really, really very prominent people losing their lives, including uniquely for the Second World War, both field commanders. So the, the Japanese commander, um, Ushijima, committed suicide at the end, which uh, Japanese commanders often did during the Pacific War. So, uh, you know, that was reasonably expected. Uh, But what was also particularly tragic about this battle is that the American commander, Simon Buckner, who was commanding his first campaign, uh, was killed by shellfire. So you can see that the fighting, even for a three-star general, was incredibly dangerous. And the other really prominent figure to die, also tragically, you know, as all the deaths were, was Ernie Pyle, who was probably the most famous American war correspondent of the war. He'd been in North Africa, he'd been in Italy, he'd landed at D-Day and he'd survived all those campaigns only to fall to a machine gun bullet uh, when he was effectively behind the lines in a uh, jeep uh, on an island just off Okinawa. I guess this was broadly an American operation. But what was the role of the British at Okinawa? It's interesting that Okinawa and the Pacific War generally is is seen as an American fight. And of course, chiefly it was. But that's not to say that towards uh, the end of the war, 1945, the British are are putting increasing number of naval assets in particular into the Pacific. Why? Because they are assuming the endgame is going to be the invasion of Japan, which they're going to be involved in with ground troops, and they want to play their part. They want to, they want to, uh, you know, they want to do their bit. And so the British Pacific fleet that takes part in the Battle of Okinawa, albeit its main job is, is to keep quiet a, a group of islands to the south of Okinawa, where there are lots of Japanese air assets. So its job is really to knock out airfields that could support the Japanese on Okinawa. Um, This British Pacific Fleet is the most powerful strike force of the whole of the war. You know, there are aircraft carriers, there are battleships, there are cruisers, there are destroyers. Uh, There are a number of fighter planes as well. And so the story of that British Pacific Fleet, I think it's gone a little bit under the radar. 
And although it doesn't fight specifically for the island of Okinawa itself, it does come under attack from many, many kamikaze attacks. And one of one of the most graphic descriptions of a kamikaze attack I've got in the book is told from the perspective of the aircraft carrier Illustrious, which is hit by a kamikaze, and it's the experience of the of the sailors on board and the effect that the kamikaze attack has on them. And you know, it's a really, really chilling story. But it but it's a bit of the story that's gone a little bit under the radar, and it does give you an indication of how significant the British realised the uh, Pacific Endgame was going to be. What was the reaction in America? I'm thinking initially, actually, of there was a civilian population to how long and bloody this battle was. The newspapers, of course, were carrying first-hand accounts of the fighting. A lot of people were writing home. So the American public was in no under no illusions as to the toughness of the fight. They could see the casualty list coming home. And I think what this brought home to both them and the politicians is how brutal the fight for the final home islands is going to be. If we consider that there were 100,000 uh, Japanese defenders give or take, on the island of Okinawa to also understand that there were three million soldiers on the home islands and that they were not going to surrender. You were gonna, If you were going to invade the home islands, which was the plan towards the autumn of 1945 and also the spring of 1946, you are going to have to fight your way through these islands. And the battle is going to be, as Truman put it later in a letter, Okinawa from one end to the other. In other words, they had no illusions that the fight for the home islands was going to be a far worse version, given the, uh, the the higher troop numbers, than it had been on the islands. And the Americans were going to have to take casualties consonant with that. How many? We don't know. But they were assuming in the millions. The British, of course, interestingly enough, were also planning to put an enormous force into the invasion of the Japanese home islands. And Churchill himself said he believed casualties would have been half a million. As we know, this didn't happen because there were the two atomic bombs dropped in August 1945. How far did Okinawa, the Battle of Okinawa, influence the decision to drop those bombs? Well, I think the connection between Okinawa and the dropping of the bombs has often been lost, actually. I think there's a there's a feeling among, uh, certainly among the public, a, a perception that, you know, sooner or later the bombs came into being. In other words, they finally developed them and then they decided to use them. What 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 they miss out on is the is the very, very clear link that there is in the documents and that there is in the, the records of the meetings at the highest level of American government, in fact, allied, uh, allied uh, command, that the fear that there was going to be an Okinawa played very heavily into the use of the of the atomic bombs. And actually, some of the dates are very interesting because there's a key meeting uh, among the high command in America on the 18th of June. The 18th of June is the day Simon Buckner was killed. And it's about three days before the battle, the final, uh, final organised resistance on Okinawa ends. So it's right at the end of the battle. And at this meeting, um, Truman, who's only been president since uh, the, the early part of April when Roosevelt, you know, dies tragically and relatively unexpectedly, although he'd been ill for a, num- a number of months, but that had effectively been, been kept from the American public. Truman's been president since then, and he gets all his senior military people and his main advisors together, and he says, what's next? And they say, what's next is the invasion of Japan, and we expect these sort of casualties. And you can imagine Truman's horrified by that, because he knows exactly what's happened on Okinawa. He's received all the figures, the, the casualty figures. And he says during that meeting, we don't want another 
Charlotte or Canal. What else can we, is there anything else we can do? And up chirps a relatively, one of, one of the more junior people at the meeting, actually, a man called McCloy, who was um, an assistant, uh, was the assistant secretary of state. And McCloy says, well, actually, we do have these weapons. They haven't been tested yet, but we've got these weapons. Uh, and it's possible if they work, we should consider using them. And Truman doesn't say absolutely. He says, OK, we'll bear it in mind. At the moment, we continue planning for the invasion, but we need to consider if these weapons work, that we we will use them. And the interesting thing about all history, of course, Rob, is that, you know, we know what happens next at the time they genuinely didn't know if they would work. You know, we now know that nuclear weapons work, that they, you know, they are a fact to this day and they play very much into the whole of strategic thinking for uh, anyone who has nuclear weapons and, and indeed anyone who doesn't have nuclear weapons. But at the time, brand new, no one had any idea if they'd work. They hadn't been tested and they were going to be tested in about a month, a month after this meeting. And it was the result of that test, really, that would allow the, the Americans to make a decision, yes or no. But we should never lose sight of the fact that Truman and most of his senior advisors were heavily influenced by the un utterable horror of the fighting on Okinawa. And actually, interesting, not just the deaths of servicemen, uh, but also the deaths of civilians. And although you may think that all of Truman's calculations uh, come into play when he's trying to save American lives, actually, I don't think that's true. And he's gone on the record and did go on the record at the time saying, this wasn't just about American lives. This is about saving Japanese lives. So when you get people criticizing and accusing the Americans of an atrocity by using those two nuclear weapons, you need to understand the context in which that decision is taken. And you need to understand the potential consequences for the loss of life, uh, particularly among Japanese civilians in Japan, if the fighting had continued and the weapons hadn't been used. So yes, 200,000 lives lost is an appalling tragedy, uh, which is the estimate of, of lives lost to the use of those two nuclear weapons. Uh, but we also need to take account of the fact that many, many more lives would have been lost if they hadn't been used. And I presume that back in Japan, the reaction to the huge Japanese death toll on Okinawa didn't actually affect the war planners' thinking. They were still carrying on thinking we're going to keep fighting until we're all killed, basically. Well, what's remarkable is that the, uh, the, the casualties didn't affect them in the slightest. Uh, they didn't affect them in the slightest. They didn't particularly affect them, and this is even more chilling thought, uh, Rob, after the first nuclear weapon was dropped on Hiroshima. So... Uh, you know, it's interesting. People say, well, you, even if you justify the use of one bomb, why then use the second one? Because nothing had changed after those. Uh, the Americans, when they made the decision with the allies, with Churchill and with Chiang Kai-shek, the, the uh, Chinese nationalist leader to use nu nuclear weapons, they then put out a, a warning to Japan. It was a coded warning, to be fair, because the Japanese had no idea that this weapon would be as destructive as it was. But they were making it pretty clear that, you know, they were going to unleash terrible destruction. You could say, OK, they were still a little bit unsure of the power of this weapon, but they certainly weren't unsure of it after it was dropped on Hiroshima. And yet the hardliners were still absolutely arguing we should go on, we should fight on. And even after the second weapon was dropped, which, of course, leads to the decision for unconditional surrender, there was a split among the, uh, the, the high command and the emperor. And it's the emperor, interestingly enough, who is finally persuaded by some of his, you might describe them as more moderate, but I would describe them as slightly le less extreme than the, than the other characters in the war cabinet who said, do you know what? 
we've got to surrender. They, they're just going to blow Japan to pieces. There is nothing we can uh, gain by fighting on. And yet, despite all of that, now two atomic weapons have been dropped. Uh, it's pretty clear where this is going. There is an attempted coup, which luckily is defeated uh, and, and the moderates retain control. But there were still hardliners, even after the second atomic bomb that was dropped, arguing we should continue the fight. So you get a sense of some of the mindset of people in Japan at that time. Let's just keep fighting to the end, a bit like, of course, the Germans had done in, in Europe. And so from your point of view, do you think the most important thing about the Battle of Okinawa is how it shaped American war planning and the fact that it led to the dropping of the bombs. I think there are two really important things to remember about this battle. This was about as bad as it can get. So even if you stop the story at the end of the battle, it would still be a story worth telling, if only to show the depths of depravity that war and some forms of combat can actually take. And what was particularly tragic for me, actually, is to look at a lot of the accounts of the Americans, well, both sides, of course, but the Americans, uh, I read an awful lot of sources from American servicemen who fought in this, and the effect it had on them for the rest of their lives. You know, you may have survived the battle if you were lucky enough, but that didn't leave you unscarred. This is a whole generation of American servicemen who fought in the Pacific War in particular, who were horrifically scarred, mentally scarred by the experience. But even if we just take that one factor about which was the which which were the the appalling nature of the savagery of the battle, you cannot get away from the fact that the real significance of this battle is what happens next, and and that is the decision to use nuclear weapons, chiefly as a result of this battle, and therefore changing the nature of warfare forever, a consequence we still live with today. And I think that, you know, we're in memory of the Second World War, when we look at the end game of the Second World War, particularly us in Europe tend to be drawn to the end of the war in Europe. And we forget that the war is still being fought. It's not only still being fought, it is going to lead to a conclusion that is the use of nuclear weapons, which were never needed in Europe, that is going to change everything forever. So to think of the end of the war as VE Day is really missing the point, in my view, and we need to see the bigger picture. As part of working on this book, have you have you actually been to Okinawa and spent any time on the island? You know, one of the great privileges, I suppose, one way to look at it, um, Rob, but also, you know, one of one of the chores, as it were, one of the one of the duties of a historian is to ferret out as much material as you can. But also, if you're going to try and give a sense of what it must have been like for people to have been in these places, to actually go and see them yourself, to to see the terrain, to look at the nature of the ground in which these American and Japanese servicemen were expected to fight. And, of course, the Okinawan civilians were trying to survive. And one of the things that struck me about Okinawa Island itself is very, you know, it's very striking, very beautiful island today, like a lot of Pacific islands are. But uh, the nature of the ground is this coral rock that is particularly destructive if you're trying to fight in it when you're using high explosives. Because, of course, uh, you've not only got to avoid the shrapnel, you know, the, the, the bullet pings and the, and, the, and, the, and the bomb shrapnel, you've also got to avoid the rock, which itself becomes a kind of lethal projectile. So you've got the danger of, of being in and among this rock on the one hand, uh, but you've also got the difficulty of actually digging into it. How do you actually defend yourself when you can't, you know, it's almost impossible to dig into this rock. And the Japanese got around this by preparing all these positions, by literally dynamiting their way into the rock. 
rock. But the Americans, as they're moving across the island, you know, all they can do is dig their foxholes where they can. And in many cases, what they're actually doing is building up a kind of sanger, uh, like the British used to do on the northwest frontier, which is just piling rocks in front of themselves because they couldn't dig into the rock, rock itself. So, you know, I think it's really important to see these places to get a sense of the terrain so that you can describe the fighting in the most accurate way possible. But also, of course, there's the advantage of being there and finding first-hand accounts. And on Okinawa in particular, I was able to get hold of a lot of accounts which have never been published before, uh, which amazingly have been translated into English, which is uh, memories of Okinawan islanders of what they went through, uh, their experiences during the battle, both people who fought for the Japanese and just civilians caught in the middle. And these accounts are heart-wrenching. And how is the battle itself remembered on the island nowadays? Well, I think the memory of the battle is twofold, actually. On on the one hand, uh, and I've got a quote towards the end of the book by uh, a man who actually fought with the Japanese um, uh, and later became a governor of the island. So really interesting character, Okinawan civilian before the war, then conscripted, then, of course, became a a prominent politician afterwards, uh, a governor. And what he says is significant. He says that the long-term legacy of the battle is unfortunate. And that legacy is that there are still U.S. servicemen on the island today. And this is actually quite controversial because, you know, there's a feeling that you we want to see the back of these people. You know, we, we are not some kind of colony of America, not 75 years on. And yet, at the same time, this same uh, uh, witness is no longer alive. He died a few years ago. But this same person made the point that actually the Americans had played their part in saving a lot of lives. When the Japanese, on the one hand, were encouraging people to commit suicide, the Americans were doing everything they could to save civilian lives by providing uh, food and shelter and a safe place for them to go. And he acknowledged uh, the debt that they still owe to America today. That was Saul David. His book, Crucible of Hell, Okinawa, The Last Great Battle of the Second World War, is out tomorrow, published by William Collins. Saul also wrote a feature on the battle for BBC History magazine. You can find that in our April issue, which is out now and also includes articles on Bloody Mary, the spies who inspired James Bond and the Declaration of Our Broth. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Friday to discuss women in the Viking world.